Hello and welcome to episode 70 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast, RIP for Magic the Gathering, for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer before they died with the rest of Magic. My name is Stanislav, alive <laughs> in Chicago. Stan, why are you so negative today? Wow. You've been reading Twitter? I've been on Twitter. Oh, boy. With me on the line from Denver, Singapore, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Yeah, I had to I had to get some VPN shenanigans going so I could download uh, a mobile game client that's not available in the States yet. So it's me in Denver, Singapore. Also with us, the godfather, Dave Harburger. You know, Singapore is a lovely place, actually. A city of malls is how I feel about Singapore. You know what else I feel about Singapore? Hmm. Happy birthday, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I, yeah, I turned I turned 40 this weekend, and I already received a lovely present from the two of you. Um, I got my uh, my fanny pack, or as uh, Emma would say, a bum bag. I immediately looked at how many deck boxes I could fit in there. It's three. Three, uh, three boulders. I'm good to go. That's amazing. That looked like a well-structured fanny pack, too. I think Stan really helped pick out a good one. It's it is beefy. Like the the buckle is like a backpacking backpack, like durable style buckle. It has it has um like a mesh fabric, like where it goes against your body, like to to keep sweat down. It is high end. It goes against your body. Yeah, performance, performance fanny bum pack. bag. Yeah. <laughs> well, Shane, as we know, there are other presents coming. I oh, man. really would like to tell you what they are, but we're just going to let the chips fall where they may as far as what shows up. Is it a box of Acoria you got from the distributor? Shut up. On this week's episode... Wow. On this week's episode, we break down some devastating results from the weekend's Magic Online events... Then we dive into red-green mid-range in modern and talk about what the word Ponza really means. To us. But first, some housekeeping. Thank you to new patrons. We have four new citizens of the Dive Down Nation this week. Uh, Quote-unquote, don't read this name. Is that what that entry said? It did. And I, I felt like we should respect that request. Okay. Anonymous, thank you. Uh, Matt W., Tanner W., and Keith W. So the W brothers all, all got in big, sounds like. Thanks thanks for showing up, Ws. <laughs> Perfect. Also, huge thanks to Jimbo for moving up a few tiers in their Patreon support. Always means the world to us. Uh, in the world of our podcast reviews, we haven't had a new review in a few weeks. So if you use Apple Podcasts, or maybe some other place that you can review podcasts, head into those apps, leave us some stars if you can, maybe a text review. That helps people find us, makes us feel uh, really good about ourselves. So if you have something to say, let us know. As always, if you'd like to support the show directly, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. We've got some new Patreon perks shipping out fairly soon, like in the next couple of weeks, or at least the ones that I'm responsible for. <laughs> I'll do that in the next week or two. Way to be a team player. It's a lot of packaging. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Throw everybody else under the bus. The stuff I'm responsible for will get done. Look, I'm just trying to avoid going out in public for now, but it's getting to the it's getting to the point now where I can just go like at, you know, eleven AM and probably avoid the crowds. You know what's hard is I have to print 
shipping labels. And I used to just do that at work. Oh, man. I would just steal paper and, and inkjet printing from work. What do I do now? I have a laser jet at home. You have a laser jet? I do have <laughs> yeah. a laser jet. And you haven't scrapped it for parts? It's a jet made of lasers. <laughs> Sweet. Um, but yeah, send me the labels. I'll print them and then I'll leave them somewhere. We'll do uh, an anonymous drop location where we don't, a no contact drop as they say these days. All right. Sounds good. Leave it in a geocache. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also brought to you in part by Mana Traders. And again, this week, I'm loving Mana Traders. I'm just loading up deck lists. And even with everyone at home right now playing a lot of Magic Online, I thought my rents were really fast this week. I think they're reinvesting a lot of what they're getting. There's like a, they have like a sea of Mana Traders bots on there, like moving cards around. I think uh, it's working better than ever, and I'm enjoying it more than ever. So if you want to get 15% off your first three months of Mana Traders, it's if you're not in the know of what Mana Traders is, it lets you rent Magic Online cards instead of buying them. And by using code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, uh, when you sign up, you get that 15% off for three months and you help us out a little bit. Thanks, Shane. And thank you, listeners. And also a preemptive thank you to David, who did the breakdown this week. Welcome to the breakdown. It's my my house this week. Um... So this week we decided that since the deck we're going to talk about is in modern this week for the dive down, we'd cover a pioneer event. Uh, it was going to be a big weekend since Ikoria was just released and people just got their hands on the cards for the first time, but it seemed kind of quiet to me. I don't know about you guys, you know, nothing <laughs> noteworthy seemed to happen as a result of these new cards, but you know, let, let's kind of take a look at this event anyway. And a lot of same old, same old, you definitely. Know? Yeah, so the event we're looking at is the Pioneer Super Qualifier from April 18th. And let's start with the top eight. In first place, Lala Uuba with Boros Burn-ish. Mm-hmm. Totally. With with Luris. It, I was, it's a port from Modern, kind of. Modern, kind of Modern Burn list. Uh, let's look through the top four, and then we can kind of come back a little bit. Okay. Uh, in second place was a friend of the show, Yama Killer. Uh, Gal Schlesinger with Gruel Agro uh, with Obash. And it looks kind of like a port from Aponza or maybe an update of earlier aggro lists with only odd numbered cards. I don't know why there'd be only odd number cards in here. It's kind of weird. Um, really cool that there are cards like Slaughterhorn in here as a potential combat trick and uh, Crater's Claws in the main deck, which is, you know, I think anytime you can have a deck that's running a fireball and win something with it, essentially, that's pretty great. I mean, second place also gets a Pro Tour qualification. So uh, Yama Killer queued for a Pro Tour by coming in second here. I cast so many Crater's Claws in my my heyday of con standard. I love seeing this card come back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in third place was Team 5C with Sram Auras, a deck that we did a dive down about a few weeks ago with Luris. Uh, you know this deck. You love this deck. This deck has uh, nothing really new about it, except for Luris. Um, so let's move on. I, I, I'm so, sort of surprised this deck came in third place. Don't you feel a little vindicated, though, David? Like, we put a lot of work into that dive down, and now we see the deck performing. Clearly, we know what's up, even before Luris is added. Yeah, I mean... That card made some difference, but 
I still think that this this deck was is pretty good. I mean, if you like heroic style decks, there's always a chance that it's going to get there. This deck felt a little bit like that to me. There's nothing broken about it. And then the fourth place deck, uh, blue black clone tribal, an old old favorite of all of ours uh, with Garuda. And uh, I just have no idea what this deck is. Also, this is the top four. What the heck is going on with this top four for this? Oh man, that that this Sultai clone deck. I mean, yeah, just kind of out of nowhere. It's weird. What what happened? Yeah, it is Sultai. My bad. Sultai clone tribal. Uh, look, this is a trade binder deck, is what this is. Spark double, clever impersonator. Is this uh, Saffron Olive just actually spiking a tournament against the odds? Against the odds. I mean, look, this is the top four, and. It was a fun bit that we all just had here, but all four of these decks had companions in them from Ikoria. So I guess welcome to the new world. Very strange to see one of the first premier level tournaments after the deck be the after the cards became legal to have such a sea change at the top of the standings, just like that. Well, you know what they say about these pioneer super qualifiers. It's a real companion meta. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, where's the rest of the the stuff? Inverter, Saltai, Mono Whites. Well, it turns out that they're in the second half of the top eight. So in fifth place was Demir Inverter. Sixth place, uh, that the Inverter deck was piloted by N, NB Falco. Uh, the sixth place was Source Odin on a Mono White Heliod deck that includes the Karn package now, which I think is kind of a, a new surprising thing to me. And multiple decks I saw in this tournament were running Karn the Great, uh, the Great Creator in Mono White. Seems like a really good uh, mana sink, another way to kind of use all that that those resources that you're making. I think it's interesting as an alternate to the aggressive plan that this deck sort of defaulted into. Uh, seventh place was Oskaya with Mono Green Walkers. Looks pretty similar to me. Not sure if you see anything different about this deck from what you usually see, Shane. No, the the Genesis, Genesis Hydra isn't really like a staple yet, but it's certainly a card that people have been playing over the Voyaging Satyrs. So, and the sideboard is pretty typical. The couple Heaven to Earth to slow down those flyers from pecking down your uh, your Planeswalkers. But that's it's pretty much pretty much stock. Yeah, don't need those. Uh, don't need those anymore in this meta because spirits is non-existent. It turns out. Um, and then in eighth place there was Alira Sirin with Mono White. So the top eight. Oh my gosh, all the top four decks have companions. It's Luris, Geruda, and Obosh. To me, it kind of looked like this weird uh, crashing of two meta games, old and new, together. The top half was four. Basically new decks. I mean, Sramora is is an older deck, but it's kind of like a, a tier below everything else. And then the second half of the top eight was pretty much standard list that we've seen. Couple quick things. Mm-hmm. There was a spirit, a band spirits decks in nineteenth place, so not totally absent from the top thirty two. But but also this this novel deck that you're referring to. There was basically a mirror copy of it in 20th place played by bob jackson yes the clone tribal with garuda yeah yeah so maybe this is a list that like people knew about somehow yeah absolutely people did and you know i think before we move on to the rest of the meta let's let's talk about these new decks yes so let's go back to decks one through four because some of the because obviously these companion decks are big uh big news and really uh not to give away too much, but we're going to spend a good amount of time talking about them before we get to Ponza in the breakdown. 
or in the dive down. So the first place deck, Lala Wuba's deck, uh, running Luris of the Dream Den out of the sideboard as their companion. In case you forgot what this card does, it is a 3-2 lifelink cat nightmare that's companion restriction is each permanent card in your starting deck has converted mana cost two or less. Salient points with Luris, because we're going to be talking about this a lot, is that it only restricts your permanence and not your spells. Keep that in mind. It has lifelink, as I mentioned, and then the other activated ability it has is... During each of your turns, you may cast one permanent spell with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard. It's card advantage, baby. It's just a card advantage thing in black-white for some reason. Um, so this deck essentially is a burn deck, right? It's running a bunch of one and two drops. Hybrid black-white. Yeah. This goes into any deck that converts out of those colors. Exactly. It goes into every deck, as we're going to discover in a little bit a little bit later. But That's also true. Yes. So this deck is, you know, it's filled with low low creature curves. It's got Gitu Lava Runner, which is a card that I feel like is always like on the edge of being the goblin guide of um, of Pioneer, basically. It's got Viashino Pyromancer, which is a card that does a little bit of extra damage to you, uh, to your opponents when it comes into play. Light at the stage, skewer the critics, Boros Charm, Lightning Strike, Wild Slash, Wizard's Lightning. Yeah, importantly for Viashino too, it also enables Wizard's Lightning, so you get that double dip there. A couple creatures do that. Yeah, I mean, Viashino does, Soul Scar Mage does, and uh, Lava Runner does. So it's got 12 things that enable Wizard's Lightning. Lightning Bolt in, in Pioneer, who wanted it? These guys. Stan. Yep, exactly. So I actually played this deck. This isn't really that new... It's just not that popular for some reason, but there was a Boros Burn deck with Chain to the Rocks, though I think at that point it was in main deck. Here it's in the sideboard. Like, literally the week before Christmas. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if it was a 5-0 or if it was from a tournament, but the only reason I remember that is because it was Christmas morning and I was doing leagues with it. <laughs> Pioneer was still new. I was excited about it then. Well, here's why I think it might be popular now. You can cast permanents out of your graveyard for that are less than two cmc over and over again if you lose them with our new friend luris just the thought is that luris of the dream den it is luris of the dream den Ah, yes yes Yes. love her here's what i want to know how did a nightmare get to sleep in the dream den that doesn't make a lot of sense (laughs) to me is luris the big cat or that little kitten in the art oh man good question i think it's both that's what's amazing about it uh, there's some real looper stuff going on there. Uh, <laughs> second place, Yama Killer's deck is red green aggro, which is similar, I guess, to what Stan was just saying about the Boros Burn deck. Is that you know, Gruel Aggro has been kind of a deck that's on the edges of being good enough in um, in Pioneer. Uh, a lot of times we felt like it come came down to the fact that the mana was really bad. But guess what? When you have Obosh the Prey Piercer in your sideboard as your companion. Uh, and what Obosh does is it's three hybrid red black, hybrid red black. Its restriction is your starting deck contains only cards with odd converted mana costs and land cards. And then it says if a source you control with an odd converted mana cost would deal damage to a permanent or player, it does double that damage. Double, double damage. And you, and you thought that Torbin was good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who's Torbin? <laughs> he's not. He's no Obosh. He's not your daddy's companion. Yeah. I mean, and this deck, you know, there's huge 
threats in here that are evasive and that can suddenly deal double damage. Let's talk about, for example, Steel Leaf Champion, which all of a sudden deals 10. (laughs) Seems okay. Seems okay. I really wish I could get a Questing Beast in this deck. (laughs) Too bad. 4 CMC. Ronus is good. This can't run Surak, can it? Or can't... It was like, isn't Surak 5 or Surak 4? Surak is 4, I think. Oh, too bad. Too bad, Surak. Yeah, he's 4. Surak would be incredible in this deck. Surak, the Hunt Caller. Yeah. So, red-green, Obosh doubles some damage. You always can play it on turn 5 if you want to, after you've played Giant Beaters on turn 3 and turn 4. Closing power, I think is what they call that. Um... Third place is the SRAM Auras deck that we talked about. That one is running Luris of the Dream Den in the sideboard as well. And guess what? In a deck that has powerful threats, but that can be quite fragile, being able to replay them, rebuy them from the graveyard is pretty good. Is a pretty good way to bring your back deck back after it's taken some damage or taken some removal early in the game. Yeah, like what we talked about in our dive down was how challenging it was to play against removal-based decks. And this just invalidates so much one-for-one removal if you can stick a late-game Luris in some way and then just get a lot of value off it. It's, it's, it's otherworldly. Yeah, and the huge part here is it gets back both the creatures and the enablers. Yes. So the burn deck, it just gets back the creatures, basically. But in this deck, you know, you can if you need enchantment, if you need a buff, get it. If you need a creature, get it. If you need SRAM to draw some cards, go ahead and get it. You could rebuild a board so quickly from this. Yeah. Like if if they're just, you know, they're stuck, they're top decking, you ran them out of removal, and then you play Alluris, you can get access to like, what, six, seven, eight cards, probably pretty darn easily, and just go to town. And then the fourth place deck, which is maybe the most uh, hard to discern, and probably the deck that caused one of the biggest buzzes on Twitter over the weekend, is the deck that I have somewhat inappropriately called... Uh, Demir clone tribal. <laughs> I would that was me trying to be funny and bury the lead. But what this deck is is a Garuda Doom of Depths combo deck. Yes. And here's what Garuda does. So Garuda is sort of the mirror image of Obosh in the sense that your deck is only allowed to have even converted mana costs if you if you want to play this as your companion. And then what it says is when Garuda enters the battlefield, each player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard. Put a creature card with an even converted mana cost from among those cards onto the battlefield under your control. Yes. This one not only has the companion Garuda, it also has three more in the deck. Yeah, because what this deck tries to do is ramp itself into playing Garuda over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Seems good. Essentially. And then just kill you. Mm-hmm. Now, there's different kill conditions. I've seen one that had Th- uh, Thassa's Oracle in it, kind of like a self-mill kind of thing. Uh, it looks like this one that came in fourth place is trying to kill with some kind of combination of just a big 6-6 six, six and Dragon Lord Coligan, which is a pretty interesting card to have because it gives other creatures that you control haste, but also um, uh, has flying and haste itself. So you can make a big army of big cards and then just kind of like swing in for a bunch of damage. Um, I have not played against this deck yet, but... Boy, did this deck lead to some problems already over the weekend. Yeah, I saw some board states that were just uh, absurd. Just like just uh, 10, 12 copies of uh, 
Man, what the heck's that car's name? I've already lost Garuda? it. Obosh? Garuda? Yeah, Obosh is cool too, though. I mean, clone him, yeah. I really like the Godzilla card. Yeah. This one, Gigan, Cyberclaw. Cyberclaw Terror. Yeah, so, and and of course, I think most people who listen to our show probably follow things close enough to know that Garuda was basically insta-banned on Magic Online in all formats because it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Uh, it started out with a ban in Legacy, and then they banned it in the middle of a Pioneer PTQ. Isn't that insane? Yes. I, f- I found it also interesting they used the word, like, banned, which made it sound much more final than it was. It should have been, like, been like, it's a temporary ban while we fix it. Like, the messaging was not great. Mm-hmm. Now, my understanding is that they banned it because it works not as well as it should. Hold on, you're kidding me. Because right now, if you read Garuda... Even if the cards are exiled off of its comes into play trigger, you can select one of the cards that were milled from it and put it into play. So basically, you should be able to play this card through Rest in Peace and Leyline of the Void. And right now in Magic Online, you can not. Oh my gosh. And so I think what, you know, that might be fixed by the time the show airs, but it's fascinating to me that they shut it all down because of that. Amazingly, it's not the only companion that was bugged on Magic Online. Apparently, Luris has bugs with it, where it lets you cast cards, X cards specifically, for casting costs above two, which it should not be able to do right now. So, for example, if you want to try to cast a Walking Ballista for four generic mana, it will do that. It should not be able to do that. Um, and other fun things. But anyway, I think that's a side note. Hopefully, that's all fixed by the time the show airs. Do you know off the top of your head, did this tournament happen before they like temp banned Gyruda? It did. Yeah, I think this was an, an event that fully fired. Then there was a legacy event that was going to happen that they canceled, I think. And then there was a pioneer PTQ or qualifier that was going on that was in the fourth round mm-hmm. and they just shut it down. Right. And refunded everyone. They refunded everybody. They paid out prizes based on the number of wins they had when the event ended as well. Cool. Yeah, the response to that was not super happy. Nope. Twitter was on fire. Huh. On fire. Yeah. Warm to the touch, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, when I touch the app, the little tile on my phone, I got a burn. I got a second degree burn (laughs) on my thumb. From all the hot takes. It's feverish in there, and not because of a global pandemic. (laughs) Exactly. All right, so let's zoom through the rest of this event because um, I want to save some time for discussion and also we don't want to take too much away from the dive down section. But uh, 9th through 16th was a little more stable. There was kind of a mix of... It, it was basically eight different decks, uh, seven different decks. There were two mono-red Obosh decks and then kind of a bunch of greatest hits from where Pioneer was before these cards were released. And then there was a Hardened Scales Luris deck and a Hardened Scales non-Luris deck. So maybe there was really six decks. Sorry to keep knocking that down. Uh, it's interesting to see another red aggro deck with Luris uh, in one spot and then a red aggro deck with Obosh in a different spot. I think they're both pretty cool. Obviously, um, there's the benefits to both of those different cards, but those seem to be two of the most popular ones that keep popping up in uh, Pioneer right now, at least. Um the other thing that was really interesting in this bracket of the tournament is that the 10th place deck, the Scales deck, had no new cards. It didn't have the, um, I forget the name of the one mana artifact from Ikoria that Stan spoiled last week, the one that moves counters around. It didn't have that legendary one in it. Obelisk or Obsalot, Obsidat. Not the Obsidat. <laughs> yeah. Well, it didn't have that in it. It didn't have any new cards in it, but it still managed to come in 10th place. 
Uh, it's kind of a deck from Pioneer's infancy. And then uh, in the 17th through 32nd bracket was really a, a huge mix. You know, there was a Chonky Red deck. There was a Bant Spirits deck. There were two Lotus Breach decks, Mono Black Aggro, Golgari Aggro. There's a bunch of random stuff here. If you look at the breakdown of the entire metagame of the top 32 of this event, didn't feel like there was a lot of consensus. The biggest deck, actually, in my mind, was a, the sort of like red chonky to aggro spectrum there were five decks that kind of fit within that some of those had obosh some of them didn't have obosh some one had luris you know they're all different decks i know but those were the kind of like red decks of different persuasions let's say your monastery swift spear slash soul scar mage decks the the next group that i saw was four mono white devotion four mono green walkers so those are your kind of like nykthosi decks the uh, Inverter was next with three. Uh, Sram Auras had two entries. Scales had two entries. Sultai had one. It all felt kind of random after that. Hmm. The punchline here is that for as much as we just talked about companions, in this particular event, they didn't totally dominate the event. Take it back. There were nine decks in the top 32, so it was a little over 25% had companions. But this was also very early in the weekend. And we have a whole bunch of evidence to show that things are going a different way. And so I felt like this was an interesting kind of like tournament to look at because it was the start. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing like a, a high value tournament, you're probably more likely to play a deck that you're comfortable with or think has legs. And you're not immediately going to jump to one of these companion decks unless you're some of these gutsy people where it paid off. Yeah, and keep in mind that, so this tournament, I think I said it was on the 18th. It's actually on the 17th, so it was on Friday. By the time the weekend went on, things had very much changed. So let me give you some notes about what we learned about on Twitter. Uh, first thing is, Austin Yost, who is a, an SCG grinder, I believe, had posted a very interesting tweet on Sunday morning that said that during this week, eight of the 10 companions had made a top eight of a premier MTGO event in a legal constructed format. That sounds weird, but what that means is that of those new companion cards, eight of them top eighted in Pioneer or Legacy or Modern or Vintage or Standard uh, within the first weekend of being released. Sick. Yeah. Seems good. Brian Gottlieb put a little bit of a finer point on it. He shared a tweet on Monday morning, Brian Gottlieb over reading deck li uh, lists, of course, that said companions took first and second in the vintage challenge, first through fourth in the legacy challenge. They were the entire top eight of the modern challenge last weekend, including Shane, you counted it, seven Luris decks in the top eight. Yes, seven Luris decks. And one Yorian deck. They took first through fourth place in the Pioneer Challenge and six of eight slots in the top eight of the Standard Challenge. Good look. We could go on and on. People are talking about this. There's all kinds of cases for and against this. But let's let's give the fans what they're tuned in for. Team, they want our takes on Companion. You know they do. <laughs> let's give it to them. Hmm. I'm going to give the floor to Shane first. Okay. Um. I'm not going to be overtly like just hard negative on this because one, I think that we don't have enough experience with them. I think that you know when we first saw like Stormforge Mystic get unbanned, what well, we saw like thirty odd decks show up in the first deck dump with Stoneforge, right? And we've we've seen her 
taper off and trickle into being not even super relevant right now, I think, and even in the BANT control decks that we see in modern, right? So sure, one thing is like this is like a hot new thing. People want to test these things out. But also, like we said last week uh, or the week before, is that this is just effectively an eighth card in your starting hand. So that alone, combined with some of the power level and, and their effects on the game, makes it very compelling to try to move towards running a companion in your deck. And if you don't like change in your game and you don't like the the way that companion plays out or you don't like the sort of commander-esque vibe it, it provides to the game, then you might be initially turned off, especially because it's it's, it's showing up so frequently and, and performing and perhaps overperforming right now. I mean, I think that this is such a resounding sort of case that it's very, very, very hard for me to believe that this is not going to have to be walked back somehow with either some kind of intervention eventually, but maybe we'll we'll set that aside for a second. I mean, after playing a little bit with companions, it's super powerful. Just that idea of knowing one card that's going to be, quote unquote, in your hand and that your opponent cannot interact with via Thoughtseize, essentially is um wild it's super wild it's beyond you know a couple of weeks ago we talked about you know how much drawing a free card was worth how much card selection is really worth you know when the once upon a time discussion and this is just that times 20 you know it's like you always know you're going to have luris you always know you're going to have it it's going to be available to you when you play your third land every time now they're they're all creatures so they can die that makes a difference, but um, it's really something. Stan, what do you think so far? I'm frustrated because I don't want to buy four cards. I have to buy seven now, like just one of each companion. <laughs> the playset wasn't enough. I think that is a bridge too far. Um, <laughs> well, Stan, I, I know in, in our conversations this week, um, I think you're of the opinion that people are being a little bit too hasty in their in their and being a little bit over the top in their response. Oh yeah. I do think a lot of the hive mind is pretty hyperbolic with magic. And we see that definitely happening like right now with companion. It's a little frustrating because it's like so new and it, for me at least it makes it a little harder to enjoy this new thing when people have decided they hate it already. Mm -hmm. I think in some cases before even really playing with the cards, I'm trying to stay positive though. Like, cool new cards that i get to play i don't have to buy a play set to know that i can cast one i can cast one every game that's cool yeah i and hey we know this i love pokemon so now like i have a little buddy why not see that's that's like an issue for me personally i'm not gonna you know stick on this too much but i i don't like the the, the sort of flavor and performance of it as a mechanic because i don't really want to have a deck mascot why not i just don't like I don't want to have to build around a restriction based on the companion mechanic. I, what it, what really the issue too is homogeneity. Like if if it gets to the point where it's just stupid not to run a companion, then that's going to restrict some things. I mean, it's certainly looking that way in modern, 
right now. Like literally every archetype you could think of is putting a Luris in the sideboard and three or four Mishra's Bobbles in the deck as just a package to say like, yeah. hey, I can use Luris to draw a bunch of cards if in the mid game to like grind out if I run out of steam. And that was successful for a Delver deck this weekend. That was successful for Jeskai Control this weekend. That was successful for Grixis Control. That was successful for- For Jund. For Jund, yeah. Jund's huge, huge point there. That was successful for Hardened Scales as a as a uh, a deck as well. And so it's just kind of like a weird bad look when you think about it that way. One of the issues is just the way that it provides so much advantage in the form of Luris because not only is it an eighth card in your hand, it's cards like 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 in your graveyard. And I kind of compared it to Dredge uh, very early on when I realized exactly what Luris especially was doing. Like when you dredge five, you can sort of read it as draw five, right? Like that's kind of like the the shtick of dredge. But you're getting five crappy dredge cards. Like the dredge cards on their own are not that amazing, right? But with Luris, when you cast a Luris, that could effectively be draw eight cards from your graveyard, and it, it works so well because those are cards you typically want to be casting. And I, and, and I know that's not effectively what it's doing, but it's like that in, if, if it survives for any length of time. Yeah. I, for one, hope they print more companions. I like that seven out of eight companions already seem good. I want more companions because, A, now you get to open any companion in a pack and be like, hey, I get to probably play this card if I want to build around it. I don't need to necessarily buy three more copies unless it's Cyberclaw, the new flavor of White Claw. And mm-hmm. I don't know. Give me more. It's, it's, it's almost like the new Planeswalker, except it's maybe not quite as good as a Planeswalker or better than a Planeswalker. I think it's way better than a Planeswalker, to be honest. Yeah, I just really don't want to go down that road. I, I am not a big fan of the some people get to play with an extra card in their opening hands and some people don't vibe of this i think the vibe of this is that uh coupled with some of the recent history and mtg is cars are just going to keep getting better and better and i think we have to get used to that i'd love to talk about that for a second sure so here, here's the thing i think you're totally right about that and while i do think that the companions are going to get banned and maybe it's as a mechanic i think there's an outside shot that they just say that the companion mechanic is banned and the cards are all fine on their own, and maybe people get to play their Garuda combo deck, and that is what it is, and maybe some deck settles on... Sram Auras decides, I want to have Luris in my deck still. You know, like, I think that that's the thing. But the point is, this is all intentional. I think people keep acting like these are mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like, they go, how could Wizards let this through? It's so clearly a mistake. It's not a mistake. Like, this is this is what they're doing to exert innovation across all of their formats all the time and make people be engaged. And I think that to do that, they're making powerful cards. Powerful cards are exciting. People want to talk about them. The controversy of saying stuff is broken generates interest, but it also generates fun gameplay for a certain amount of time. And then they ban them and that's, that sucks. (laughs) Uh, But I do think it's intentional. I'm not sure I'm, you know, I don't want to get into the whole like monetary part of that because that's such a difficult thing. But I do think that this is intentional. I'm not sure I think the kind of like the all press is good press, like all eyes on our game is a good thing, which seems to be what Wizards is sort of counting on these days is a great idea. 
Um, I think that having like a significant amount of negative sentiment surrounding your game and like questioning your game design abilities is not necessarily uh, a great idea. That was going to happen no matter what. I don't think that's true though. But also Stan, you're saying that they're just good cards, but it's not just that they're good cards. It's that it's a very good mechanic that forces people to play with them, that, that may force people to play with the mechanic or fall behind in power level. And and we've had you know 27 years of magic not re- revolving around a commander-esque theme for our standard constructed sets and uh, the way that we play in our eternal standard uh, constructed sets and formats rather is that to, to make people think that they are they have to do it or fall behind or it homogenizes uh, like around seven of the top eight playing Luris uh, or not winning it's just not where I want to be playing personally. And so it's not just the fact that these cards are good because we're all dealing with good cards for the last, you know, two, three, four or five years, right? It's the fact that this entire idea is too good. I do agree with that. I have one last thing to say before we leave the breakdown. And that is I am officially updating the status of mtgbandswen.com. I'm moving to DEFCON 3. Whoa. <laughs> for the Companions. And uh, we'll see where it goes from there. What's the DEFCON scale? I'm talking about War Games. It's probably a movie you never saw. No. Because it's from 10 years before you would have seen movies. But it's a good (laughs) 80s movie. It's really good. Uh, Yeah, I'm just moving. So MTG Bands when it's green right now, I'm moving it to yellow, essentially. Cool. And, uh, you know, we'll see. I might try to add some fun interactive features on there. So go check out mtgbandswen.com. Uh, for fun yeah widgets are you adding widgets dave i think i'm gonna gonna try to add a poll honestly uh someone in our slack alana asked us if we could do a uh if we could do a poll or a deadpool essentially for the companions i'm gonna see if i can figure it out stan there's a really important line very quotable from uh from war games and it's the only winning move is not to play and (laughs) i I hope i hope we don't get there with this would you like to play more companions modern dr falcon falcon (laughs) can we uh not commit but at least reveal that we will probably talk about companions as a mechanic again in the future perhaps as soon as next week's episode i think i think you should totally say that sure i can say it if you want i think i think this is all going in yeah oh is this all going in (laughs) this is all going in all right listen everybody uh, our next week's episode is planned to be our, of course, Sleeve Believe Heave episode that we do for every set. I think there's a very good chance that we will do new decks in Pioneer and Modern based off of cards from Ikoria. It will be impossible to not have Companions be part of that or probably be all of it. So don't be surprised if next week we're talking about Companions again and each of us pilots a different Companion deck for fun and glory. But at least we'll have to, we don't have to repeat ourselves from this week, though, so that's good. I think we might have some evolving viewpoints. Let's see what happens after another week. Yeah, that's the hope, right? Let's let's yeah. evolve some viewpoints. We want to learn together. That wraps up our very controversial breakdown. Thank you guys for your very tempered and even-keeled takes. We'll take a quick break, and when we return, we're diving into Ponza. It's like a calzone, but deep fried. Stay with us.
today I get to share a sentence I never thought would be said by anyone. <laughs> Let's talk about the tier one modern deck, Red Green Panza. Amazing. Also known as Gruel Midrange. 2020, what a year. Panza. Wow. Panza. Guys, Panza. I know. This is what happens when you give too many Magic players too much time on the internet. They start playing with Panza and they start winning. I think this is what happens when lands get too good. This is exactly my hypothesis as well. So we'll see. We can double back on that after we talk about the gameplay. I just want to say off the top, this episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Odin. Long time friend, <laughs> long time, long time friend and listener, long time citizen of the Dive Down Nation. I I was living at my old apartment the first time I said Odin's name. I remember exactly where I was sitting because it was while we were recording the podcast and I always sat in the same place. <laughs> All right, this one's for you, Odin. Stan, you want to give us some of the controversial history of Ponza and where the name came from and you know what? Even if you, this is true, I'm still going to have my doubts about whether this is apocryph- apocryphal or not. So let's see. Yeah. So red-based land destruction decks have been around modern for a long time. They've been around magic forever. I believe Stone Rain was printed in alpha. Definitely is. But the name Ponza is a specific way to describe a type of deck according to my research, first appeared in 1999, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And apparently it was at a Pro Tour qualifier for Pro Pro Tour Rome by a player named Brian Cowell. So Brian Cowell, definitely a longtime player. Brian Cowell still plays. I think that if I remember right, Brian Kowal is someone who is well-known in the legacy and vintage scene right mm-hmm. now, more so than than some of the more recent formats. But yeah, that's a name that you will see someone who gets on Twitter and participates in Magic Community stuff as well occasionally. So, And the name of this deck, historians agree, originates from a dish, <laughs> an edible dish called the Ponza Rata served at a restaurant in Waukesha, Wisconsin, called Jimmy's Grotto. And their ponza is a small pizza that's folded over, sealed, and then deep-fried. So it's like a calzone, but it's deep-fried instead of baked. I like where this is going. Does this remind you at all of this, that old, like, Saturday Night Live sketch that was like, pizza, now that's a taco. It's kind of- you ever see that where they're like, you take a pizza and we put tacos in it and then we put it in a bag full of chili and all this stuff. It was like a bad fast food parody. No. Yeah, that was our era of Saturday Night Live, Shane. I also want to update everybody looking at the uh, Yelp page for Jimmy's Grotto right now. Uh, Jimmy's Grotto, three and a half stars. Seems solid. Uh, It says, if you want to try the Ponza, I recommend calling 30 minutes ahead of time. Nice. The Ponza. It's a weird pizza, and similar to this dish, this edible dish, the deck is a combination of crust, which is the land, meat, which are creatures, red sauce, which is how they describe land destruction, and ramp, which are veggies. Also, this restaurant is a two-hour drive from our house. Dave? I know. As soon as we're allowed out, we're going. Oh, yeah. So if Alpac won't sponsor us, maybe Jimmy's Grotto will. 
Jimmy's Grotto, get at us. Sponsor our magic podcast, Jimmy's Grotto. You've been part of the magic community for 20 years. You just probably didn't know it. We're usually not a history podcast, but because there's like some weird and notable anecdotes with ponds in particular, I just want to mention them very quickly. The deck popped up at a very high level game in January of the year 2000 during a match between John Finkel playing a deck, which I believe was called Napster, and Chris Benefall playing a deck called Ponza in the finals of U.S. Nationals during Mercadian Masks Standard. Gross. How early 2000s are those sentences right there? It was called <laughs> Napster. <laughs> Versus Kazaa. First off, we don't name magic decks anymore, number one, at least not after cards that they, that uh, after arbitrary things. And then second, it's Finkel in the finals of Nationals, and it's Mercadian Masks. <laughs> Yeah, Finkel won. Also, Aaron Forsyth was in the top eight of that event. Yeah. Flash forward 2016, we actually start to see a deck emerge in modern that kind of looks and resembles what Ponza is today, during an era known as Eldrazi Winter. And it was based on a very similar foundation of Utopia, Sprawl, and Arbor Elf. Pillage, of course, at the time wasn't legal, but the deck was running Blood Moons, Stone Rain, and Moonwaldi Acid Moss. The payoffs were also a little different. Back then, people were running Inferno Titan and Storm Breath Dragon, which are big creatures that do sometimes still see play, even in Ponza today. So really quick, taking our temperatures, we all got to play this deck. What'd you guys think? Uh, loved it. Loved it? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know why. Like, I, I usually don't play red and green together. I'm, you know, um, I... It just reminded me of a lot of different stuff that was pretty fun. Like it had a pretty aggressive plan that you could move into sometimes. It also had some kind of prison-y elements. It reminded me a little bit of when we all played Mono Red Prison for the show where, you know, you're doing some rampy stuff to try to get a, a payoff out basically a turn or two turns earlier than you should. And uh, that just kind of felt like the name of the game. And so it was cool to try to get into Blood Moon or Chandra or a piece of land destruction through a different kind of angle than what that mono red deck was all about, which was, you know, rituals and spirit guide and stuff like that. Um, I felt like I I'm not quite sure. I mean, we're going to talk about it a lot more, but it felt like it was had game in basically every match that I was, was in, which yes. is really good. And in a way that like, even Jund, which people, you know, is another modern deck, doesn't really all the time feel like it's in every match. This felt like for some reason it is, and maybe that's because the threats are really powerful. But uh, I, we all have some conjectures about that later, I'm sure. Yeah, I thought this was, it's like fine. Like it, it sort of felt generally on the same wavelength as like other decks I've played in modern, like where you want to get your mana engine online, you want to cast big threats, you could provide resource denial, you can go over the top. This is just Tron. Isn't it? This is just Tron. It's a different flavor of Tron. This is the anti-Tron. Yeah, I don't think it's like Tron. This is the mid-range that you play when you want to beat Tron. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm saying it's it's it's. I do agree with Dave. It has like some prisony elements, but besides like some Magus of the Moon sort of early plays, I didn't really feel like I was doing anything sort of broken-ish. Like I'm not getting like a lock. Uh, I liked I liked doing some mana denial with pillage for sure. Yeah. Dude, I played two glory bringers on turn three in one game with this deck. Wow. <laughs> Sounds good. 
Yeah, I, I lost. We'll talk about that later. But uh, I did play play two Glorybringers on turn three. It seems like it would have been good enough. Maybe part of the reason I love this is because uh, the first league I did with it, I got a 4-1, which was sweet. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. So I decided to do a prelim for the first time ever. And uh, I streamed a bunch of it, which was pretty fun uh, on last Friday night. Might it try it late. again. Sometimes it was late. It was late at night. I streamed until about 1 a.m. Central Time. Um, it was fun. Mickey, I believe from our, from our Slack was there. I never know what people's Twitch names versus their Slack names are. <laughs> yeah. It's the hardest, but, uh, yeah, uh, I got a two, three in the prelim, unfortunately, but that was very close as well. Um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun to play. And that was your first prelim, right? Since they introduced that first prelim ever. Yeah. I don't think any, have any of us done a prelim before? Not no, yet. I've been waiting for the podcast to pay for mine. Uh, totally worth it. Well, uh, expense approved. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Modern prelims are Friday nights at 9 p.m. Yeah, I, I like the deck, too. I've actually been playing it for a few weeks. I mean, I didn't necessarily have to twist your arms, but like, I was kind of hoping we would get to talk about it on the show one day. I suggested it last week. You guys were on board. I was delighted. And, and now I'm delighted to hear that you generally had positive experiences playing with it. But let's talk about what the deck is doing, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems kind of out of character for you to like this deck. I guess in some ways. It's definitely a different axis for Stan in, in, in a lot of ways. I did want to recognize too that what about six weeks ago you were like, guys, you need to keep an eye on Ponza. It's starting to happen. Oh yeah, I could tell. I mean, it was starting to pop up more in the leagues then, though it wasn't like even on page one of MTG Goldfish at the time. But I could just tell, you know, after a few Clothis were cast against me that like this Clothis card is really interesting. It feels like this deck has the potential to do some powerful stuff. I started tweaking it. People made fun of me a little bit. Then smarter players started tweaking it, and it started doing even better. So Ponza's cool. Let's talk about why. Yep. What's this deck trying to do? If you've never heard of Ponza, at its heart, this is a resource denial-based mid-range strategy. Whether it's destroying lands or casting a Blood Moon effect, that tends to be the DNA of Ponza decks, especially in recent history. Can I throw out a little like uh, comparison for you? Imagine if you took Pillage and Mag- Magus of the Moon and set them aside and replaced them with Thoughtseize and Inquisition of Kozilek. Like that's sort of the difference in a lot of ways. In- the seed of this deck between like hand disruption, hand denial that's in Jund and resource denial and ramp that's in this deck, right? I guess, though, you can never cast a turn one pillage or bloodman in this deck. Mm-hmm. Right, but you don't, for lands, that's that's not particularly fair. But it's more like, you know, one of them goes by an axis where they try to take out people's threats in their hands, and the other one goes in this axis where they try to take out threats that are on the board that are usually permanent, right? Yeah. Right. And, you know, in addition to this type of interactive plan, the deck often has some kind of ramp strategy as well. Generally with the overall goal of casting big threats ahead of curve. So we'll go into the cards for each of these components in various sections, but it plays a lot like a mid-range strategy in my mind for a couple of reasons. A, the deck doesn't have a particularly fast line to lethal. Like, I don't think you can goldfish a turn four, turn five kill. Turn five, maybe? Turn five, for sure. Yeah, it definitely does not, you know, fly past the uh, opposing defenses. I mean, Glorybringer does, but... (laughs) 
that's fair. You know, similar to some other mid-range strategies, I think it does actually want to spend much, as much mana each turn as possible. You know, this is this didn't feel to me like the type of deck that rewards you holding up your interaction. In some cases, because a lot of that interaction is at sorcery speed. So instead, you sort of chug along a bit in turns one or two to set up your mana. Then you build up a some amount of tempo by taking your opponents down on resources. And eventually you win by producing threats that are hard to deal with, especially if your opponents might have fewer lands to tap. So I found that a lot of games I was winning with three or four permanents on the board, kind of swinging for lethal. Mm-hmm. Not a traditional go-wide deck, but it's not a very narrow go-tall deck either. Yeah. So how does this happen? It all begins with those early mana acceleration spells, Arbor Elf and Utopia Sprawl. Mm-hmm. Classic combo. I mean, actually, starting to be the seed of a whole bunch of other different decks, too, right? Like... I mean, you've seen the Planeswalker Prison deck that um, that Aspiring Spike put together, and that you know we talked about Lawson Zandy who piloted that to the championship of our little tournament that we had a couple of weeks ago. You definitely see Arbor Elf and Utopia Sprawl in this kind of powerful engine, and, and here's how it works, right? What you do is um, Utopia Sprawl is an enchantment, an aura that says Enchant Forest. It costs a single green mana, and it says as Utopia Sprawl enters the battlefield, choose a color. Whenever Enchanted Forest is tapped for mana, its controller adds an additional one mana of the chosen color. And its best friend is Arbor Elf. And Arbor Elf is a 1-1 elf that costs a single green mana. And it says, tap, untap, target forest. So it's a little bit of a riff on Llanowar Elves in the sense that, you know, you get to untap a land instead of it generating a mana, but that allows you to do things like go into a play where you can generate four mana on turn two. And that's that's the the kind of best case scenario, but you can definitely do crazier things like that. As I said, I generated 10 mana on turn three, and that happened through a Utopia Sprawl, three Arbor Elves, and just hitting my land drops. <laughs> but it happened. Yeah, the little best practice there is if you have Utopia Sprawl and Arbor Elf in your hand, if you play your turn one Elf, turn two, you play another land, tap that one to enchant your untapped forest, tap your enchanted forest, untap it with elf, tap it again, and you have a turn two Chandra. Yep, which is still breaking. Like, it's pretty back-breaking to play against a turn two Chandra. It's just hard to keep up with. Very good card. So I think the the thing to think about here, the big decision is if you have both of these in your hand, like Stan said, that's the best case scenario. You should really look at what your game plan is when you're doing this, though, because there are many times where if you don't have a four mana threat for turn two, maybe it's okay for you to play it a little bit more safe and keep your Arbor Elf back until you um, get some removal out of your opponent's hands or until you can use it in a way that keeps them from killing it. Uh, the flip side to that is that, you know, you you just want to be safe uh, and not get your elves exposed to decks that have a lot of removal with them because people know to kill the Arbor Elf as soon as possible. Yeah, I frequently was playing like that turn one elf and just planning on untapping and Utopia Sprawling and just like, you know, please don't kill my elf, please don't kill my elf. But the payoff is just so good. Yeah, I mean, some, sometimes it is, it is good to be able to cast uh, two, three drops on turn Three, for example, you can kind of make happen sometimes with that, or you get to put a glory, a single glory bringer out if you're lame 
unlike me who can do two on turn three like that that's all good too because there are five drops that are powerful in this deck as well you know compared to some other turn one mana plays like such as noble hierarch or birds of paradise do you think these are better or worse top decks on average later in the game than something like hierarch i don't think they're much better in any way because one issue that i have with this deck that i'll be talking about more later as we go through things it doesn't really have any mana sinks which was mildly surprising to me so like if you suddenly get access to more mana options like with uh, utopia sprawl or something like that it's not exactly game breaking whereas like if you had a devotion style deck or something with like carrying the great creator or a walking ballista and you're like oh man i have so much mana now i get to do something bonkers i didn't feel like that i was felt like i was restricted by the cards that i was drawing off the top versus having access to like powerful weird wishboard options or something yeah i mean you still don't want to draw a noble hierarch on turn six in humans right like that's not really generally going to get you there sometimes it'll buff your mantis rider but yeah so i i think that these are around the same as top decking another mana dork somewhere else although i do think that there are some instances where you might be in that kind of like turn five turn six turn seven area where you get another arbor elf and you're like oh now i can play uh, a season pyromancer and then also play whatever cards I get off of the season pyromancer or, you know, play a three drop and activate the activated ability of the season pyromancer in my graveyard. So there, there are a couple of places where you can all of a sudden want to use a whole bunch of mana, but I do think that Shane is kind of right that, you know, sometimes I would have access to nine mana and have nothing to do with it. I think one reason why these cards may have a little bit of an edge over a random top deck Birds of Paradise in a vacuum is they can potentially help you get to that seven colors devotion requirement of a card we're going to talk about very shortly. Mm -hmm. Definitely true. Let's talk about the big level up with Utopia Sprawl. (laughs) 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 If you learn one, if you try Ponza and you learn one thing from listening to us, do not put Utopia Sprawl on a stomping ground. Don't do it. Don't do it. Unless... Unless you absolutely have to. Or you've taken all of your Blood Moon effects out of your main deck. Yes. Yeah, then it doesn't matter. But but the Blood the blood Moon, Mages of the Moon, will make Utopia Sprawl fall off of your stomping ground, and that is just extremely detrimental to your plan. Uh, it basically O-for-1s you. So. Yeah. I did that once. I was like, how bad did that look on the other side? Probably pretty bad. Uh, you did it only once? I've done it a bunch of times, yeah. Yeah. I do it daily. <laughs> um, you guys want to move on to some uh, turn two and turn three mid-game stuff? Yeah, I mean, when you are ramping, you got to have payoffs, right? So let's head into what we're ramping into, right? Because that's the goal of ramp, is cast something cooler than than turn two on your turn two. We want to get some three mana drops, uh, on our turn two. So the, the the premier one that I think people would associate most with a Ponza-style deck is like a Blood Moon effect. And right now, Magus of the Moon is much more popular than Blood Moon. I'm not entirely sure why. I think it's because it, it adds to your beatdown plan, but... I think there's two things. Uh, one is Force of Negation. Mm-hmm. You can't Force of Negation a Magus, Magus of the Moon. And then, yeah, it gets to attack. But I think it's mostly against, you know, Moon is very good against Bant Control, or at least it used to be before Astrolabe became a thing. But um, that's what I would say. 
I also think one more factor is it's quite a lot better in multiples than a regular blood moon and sometimes you're just rolling the dice with your blood raid elf and getting a random magus of the moon is a lot better than getting a random blood moon great point sure yeah so that's the big one though is like the the, the mondo combo of course is i'm gonna ramp into blood mooning you as fast as possible when you don't see it coming ramping into a pillage however is definitely not that bad especially on the play and they're running perhaps a more greedy mana base with lots of different colors lots of shock lands things like that a pillage is just a sorcery you destroy a target artifact or a land it can't be regenerated so you just uh, zap their their land hopefully it's a multicolor land so you get a little bit extra value there yeah and here's the other thing it's good at it gets rid of aether vial it gets rid of amulets of vigor yeah, yeah, that's the one. It gets rid of a, uh, let's say, a Mox Amber or a Construct. But uh, that those two, first two things I mentioned are actually part of the reason that I think Pillage is really good right now is because you get a chance to take Titan off of a plan they thought was secure and or you get a chance to take Humans off of a plan or any Vile deck off of a plan they thought was secure. So, Yeah, like the primary game plan of I'm going to hurt my opponent's mana base is great, but sometimes it's it's not what you need to be doing or it's too late and you're not really stymieing them and getting an important artifact is certainly important. Yeah. The fail state is so nice here because even if they don't have artifacts, they probably have a land one or two. Yeah. This deck also has a new card that's slotted very conveniently into the plan. We mentioned her already and that's Clothis, God of destiny, a new inclusion from Theros beyond death. And that is Clothis, a, one red green legendary enchantment creature god indestructible as long as your devotion to red and green is less than seven clothis is not a creature at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase exile target card from a graveyard so that's any graveyard if it was a land card you may add red or green mana to your mana pool otherwise you gain two life and clothis deals two damage to each opponent when she is anthropomorphized she's a four five this card is bananas love this card shout out to dave for pointing out this card in your sleeve believe heave or um, no it was your uh, thorough spoiler clicks to pick yeah. yeah thorough spoiler yeah so let's talk about why she's good in this deck because i don't think that clothis is is always going to be in every gruel deck until the end of time but why is she specifically specifically good in here in uh this mid-range deck I have many thoughts. <laughs> Give me those thoughts, Stanislav. Well, first off, activating her mana engine is very, very easy in modern. This deck is running, I think, 10 fetches, if not more. So it's not unusual for you to have a turn one fetch. So even if you're casting Clothis on turn two, as soon as you untap with her, she's producing extra mana. Yeah, and that can be huge if you want to go... If you want to go turn three, turn two, Clothis, turn three, five drop. And Clothis can help you do that. So turn three, five drop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, turn three, five drop. Yep. So that's one. Against a lot of other decks, she's a clock, even when she's not a creature. The fact that if they have any non-land card in their graveyard or in yours, you're not flashing anything back from your graveyard. You're not really using your graveyard for any kind of value besides Clothis. Every turn, you're essentially moving the advantage by four life points by draining them for two and gaining two for yourself. 
Yeah, and both halves of that are so huge because they make such a difference in different matchups, right? So you're playing against Burn. You don't really care about the damage clause on Colossus as much. You just want to survive. So you really care about the life gain clause. Other decks where you are getting a little bit of pressure on them, like a control deck, you don't really care about gaining life, but the two damage is very nice on an indestructible permanent. So it becomes this kind of interesting thing where you kind of use all the parts of the the uh, legendary enchantment god. Not to mention how important graveyards are in general. Yeah. You know, against a deck that's running Uro or whatever that other card is, Kroxa, mm-hmm. they become almost uncastable if you've had a turn two Clothis. I mean, they can cast it from their hand, but they're never getting it back out of the graveyard. Yeah. I mean, that part is just gravy, but it's very, very tasty and important gravy. Yeah. How about Dredge? Yeah. Still pretty popular deck. Here's your turn, your, your game one Dredge hate, which is usually bad. <laughs> but yeah. in this deck, it's good. I managed to keep Storm's graveyard empty for long enough with Clothis as well. And that's really surprising because they can really fill up their graveyard, but you get to pick which card you want to get rid of. So if you're just kind of sitting there and you're like, I'll get rid of whatever's there until there's a Manamorphos and then I'll get rid of all your Manamorphoses. Like that becomes a real, a real thing as well. I, I felt like I maybe made a mistake here playing is because there was frequent times when I was like, I don't really see why I need more mana advantage here. I'm not really attacking their graveyard. What's Clothis doing for me when I have these sideboard cards that might be better or my other cards are, are attacking more easily? And maybe that was a mistake. Like maybe Clothis is just so flexible that she needs to stay in. If it didn't have the two damage, it would be a little bit more difficult. But if, I mean, just sitting there and taking somebody down while you kind of hold down the board is gigantic. Sure. You, you know, you could do six to eight damage with it without it ever attacking. And that's totally fine. That's a life swing, too. Yeah, I would never, ever, ever side out Clothis, I don't think. I never did either. It was just always a great draw at any point of the game. If it was in my opening hand, I was happy. If I top-decked it, I was thrilled. Unless maybe I already had one on the board, then I can understand why they would be kind of redundant. But there are ways to deal with these redundant legendary spells as well. Yeah. Well, as Dave said, my old friend Clothis, she's here. (laughs) Yeah. Can we just agree right now, Clothis is probably the best card in this deck, and it's more or less one of the reasons why this deck is so good right now. I definitely think it's one of the reasons, it's one of the main reasons the deck is so good right now. I I, I think it might be the most powerful thing here. I'm not 100% sure, because there's a lot going on, but um, and it, Clothis wouldn't be half as good without the engine, you know what I mean? But it's it's really good. I mean, it's just a, it's a preeminent mid-range card, right? In that it's giving you more mana, it's giving you a graveyard hate when you need it, it's giving you life gain swings just by sitting there, and then late game it turns into a gigantic beater that's extremely challenging to remove. So those are all things you want to be doing, so it fits into the strategy of the deck without being really detrimental in any way. Yeah. All right, I want to talk about one last ramp target the last maybe the last card that i would consider one of the ramp targets in this for real as far as turn two goes although i guess there's two of them uh chandra torch of defiance i think everybody knows what chandra does pluses to let you look at a card and do some damage it can give you some extra mana it can kill a creature it can emblem but nobody that doesn't often happen here um chandra does a little bit of everything 
right? And the ramp, I think, is particularly useful in this deck, depending on what you want to do with it. But really, this is about that um, that flexibility to have a removal spell or a draw spell or a little clock or some ramp and one card. And I think I think you know comparing it to Clothis is nice in that way. This is just a little bit more powerful in some ways. Though there's only two in the deck in the build that we played, and I don't think I would want more of those where I definitely want a full boat of Clothis. Yes, and, and this is one of the cuts from the companion version of Ponza, which we'll talk about in a little bit too. There's a companion version of this deck? Believe it. Oh, gosh. Okay. We better get through this quick. <laughs> I mean, one thing that's really important about Chandra is she's one of the only ways you're going to get card advantage in this deck besides, like, Bloodbraid Elf. Season Pyromancer. Yeah, Season Pyromancer. Is, I mean, that's why these cards, I think, are so essential to the deck and why losing out on Chandra in the companion version, uh, I'll talk about later. Well, Dave's shaking, my, shaking his head at me. It did not matter. I'll Spoiler. <laughs> Has not mattered to me so far, but let's let's uh, let's go on. Yeah, season pyromancer. You probably know what it does. One RR for a two-two. When it enters, you discard two, then draw two cards. If some of the cards you discarded were non-land permanents, you make one-one elementals. And here's another ability that I really loved in this deck, especially three RR exile season pyromancer from your graveyard. Create two one-one red elemental creature tokens. Helpful. There's your mana sink, in my opinion, especially when the deck has four of these. Yeah. I mean, it's a mana sink, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not super powerful, but it's super useful in the sense that I didn't often attack with the tokens, but I very, very frequently use them to buy, my, buy me time totally. to be able to get swing back with a Glorybringer or an animated Clothis or both, which was kind of a play that happens a lot, I think, in this deck, where it's like, I don't have enough devotion for Clothis, and then I'll play Glorybringer, and now I'm suddenly attacking for eight quote-unquote haste damage mm-hmm. and killing one of your creatures um so it's awesome i mean it's a it's a powerful card i think it's very at home in this deck it's probably the best deck that i've seen this card in the most useful version of it in a lot of ways um being able to cycle the playoffs payoffs being able to just draw extra cards is great uh yeah i think the card is really really good yeah, I just like the card because it's like, like you said, it's one of your only sources of card advantage. And so I just love casting it when my hand is empty and just getting two fresh draws. And I think you you really need to be refilling your hand with this deck because you have to frequently mulligan to get your engine pieces. So you're usually down like a card or two and you're hoping to make up for that with the power level of the cards you're playing uh, early to mid game, right? But then you're like, well, I need some more cards and Spyro gives you those. And because those early plays are not great long game value, like you, you, your early game engine is like your elf and your utopia sprawl and they, they sort of lose some value uh, as the game progresses to the end game, and that's when you need to be drawing into some gas as your payoff, right? And I was comparing it sort of mentally to humans, where like my turn one champion of the parish or my turn two Thalia's lieutenant can end up being this gigantic end game threat. But a turn one Utopia Sprawl is always just that Utopia Sprawl. So if you don't have ways to be drawing into more gas, then you're kind of out of luck. Yeah. I like casting this card just because he's handsome and ripped. That's fair. But everyone has their reasons to like magic cards. Absolutely. 
I think that uh, Season Pyromancer is interesting because it sort of moves from being a ramp target into some cards that are kind of utility-ish that are in the deck. So I think there's two cards in particular that we could talk about really quickly that are utility-style cards. For me, the first one in this particular build is Scavenging Ooze. Uh, it runs, the build that we did ran a couple in the main deck. Uh, I think it's nice. It's a nice tool. You know, it's really green's best two drop in a lot of ways when you can't play Tarmogoyf. And so being able to have a scooze there, do a mess with people's graveyards in your main deck, potentially grow a giant threat because you do have a, you know, some creatures around in this deck that you can eat with it, you know, lets it fill that kind of gap where sometimes it's a threat. Often it's just a good utility card that people have to spend some removal on and and not kill your elves with or something like that because they're relying on the graveyard. Uh, the second card I would throw into this utility slot is Bone Crusher Giant, which I think is good in this deck, and it's kind of a safety valve where it's like either a threat or a shock. Um, but I, you know, there aren't a ton of things that you always want to kill in modern with a two CMC shock, especially off the top of the deck late game. And so it's nice to have that four three come out of come out of it as well. But I just think this is a good card to have access to. I felt like I sideboarded it out a lot personally, but um, same thing with Scoos here and there, depending on what the game plan was looking like. But they're great cards to have in the main deck pre board. Yeah, it's not like Bone Crusher Giant is as good in modern as I think he is in, in Pioneer, because you're getting a lot less for your money in Modern, right? You're getting like a two-mana shock and then a three-mana four-three. And it's great to have the ability to use your mana like that, but it's not necessarily worth the card in the 60. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 also card advantage, because, you know, ideally, Bone Crusher Giant's a two-for-one. And so it's a source of red card advantage that you can play. It just felt like it's one of the worst cards in the deck to me, and I often use those slots for something else later. So why don't we talk about, after covering kind of the utility slots, the the way that we could kind of close out the game. Stan, what do you think about those cards? Yeah, they're beautiful. They're glory bringers. Three red red for a flying hasty four four dragon that exerts as it attacks. You may, you may. Yeah, but even if it doesn't have a target, I always exert to send a message. <laughs> and when you do, it deals four damage to a target non-dragon creature and opponent controls, which is most of the creatures in modern. True. So in this deck, it's usually a f- like your three turn three play. Sometimes your turn four play. Yeah. I wish I got this out on three. I never had this out on three, no. I cast two of them on three. Do you, you guys hear about that? Oh, whoa. Wait, you did? I must have missed that. I'll tell you about that game in a, in a little bit. It was wild. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing about this card is like, you don't actually... I felt like I didn't often get to kill something with the triggered ability, so I wasn't exerting it all the time. Frequently, I was just using this as something to try to put some pressure on and just holding back the trigger for later, where I think in Pioneer, a lot of times when I cast Glorybringer, it was like, I am immediately going to kill something every time and let it sit there. Sometimes I'm just like, all right, it's time for me to turn on Clothis and attack with Glorybringer and just kind of like finish this game. Um, But good that it kills creatures. You don't always need it, though, in Modern. Yeah, I find that often by the time I'm casting this, it's also just animating my Clothis, too. Yeah. Like, often this was like the last piece I needed to have three bodies on the board. Yeah. I didn't love this card. 
Um, I felt like it was somewhat slow against the fast decks, even though I'm probably not thinking quite correctly when I was playing because it is a ramp deck. So you, you want to be casting it fairly early, but even turn four, it's like, so what am I doing? I'm, in turn four, I'm casting a four, four flying haster that can hopefully take out a creature that they played. And that's good value. But then there is a, the tempo loss of the exertion for sure. That does happen. Um, so I don't know. Is this really the ultimate five drop for this deck? Like I probably wrong. Like everyone's running it. What are the other options we have here? Well, I will say they weren't running it a few months ago in the earlier builds of Ponza. But, um, you know, I think that they, you saw things like Stormbreath Dragon sometimes, and you saw um, Inferno Titan. You still see Inferno Titan, absolutely. I don't know, Stan, what do you think about this? Is this a replaceable thing and something that's good right now? Or I actually find that exerting it is relevant more often than not. I have to say, and from my experience playing this deck for like a couple of weeks, there's a lot of creatures out there where dealing four damage is actually super relevant. Um, the Dryad of the Elysian Grove, Urza, you know, the list goes on. But I like that, unlike Stormbreath Dragon, this just does both. Mm-hmm. Also, the pro white on Stormbreath isn't quite as relevant as I think it used to be. Especially as relevant as the kill a creature thing. I think that's totally fair. Sure. Um, I I could totally see this card eventually being replaced by something that is either four mana and just giving you like as much value at a better rate. Uh, but it served a purpose really nicely. And I think you almost can't evaluate this as a five mana creature. Like I think if this were a three mana creature, it would be just insane and more people would run it outright. And I think even at four mana, it's totally respectable because it's can be a two for one. Yeah, you you definitely named the two most uh, necessary targets for it there. Dryad of the Elysian Grove and Urza. Yeah. All right, so it's time to tell me about tell you about the game where I cast two of them on turn three and lost. So <clears throat> <laughs> that was against uh Titan deck actually and the way that the sequencing worked out they had um they had a dryad out on their turn three i was on the draw and i my draw had been like uh i went turn one elf turn two utopia sprawl sprawl into elf elf and then went turn three land drop uh you know Tap on tap, tap on tap, tap on tap, tap on tap. Made 10 mana, made two glory bringers, killed their dryad of the Elysian Grove, but they still had enough mana to ramp out into a Titan. And then I just lost the race because they killed me with their giant Titan uh, before I could get my glory bringers untapped fast enough to kill them. Brutal. Hey, Dave, sometimes it do be like that. (laughs) <laughs> I know it was rough. I thought that I had him for sure. And let me tell you, I thought for a long time about whether I was going to kill the dryad in that situation or not. Cause I was like, okay, like what's going to happen if I let them keep this and just try to beat them down faster than they do stuff. And what I realized is that when they bring out their Titan, they can just get Valakut and kill one of my glory bringers. So I have to have to kill the dryad. That's a good kind of, you know, sort of level up point, Dave is just because you can kill something doesn't mean you always should because you, you have to take a turn off. Right. And like if you're in a vaguely racing situation, then it they better have a really potent threat on the ground for you to not be able to untap and deal four in the air again. 
Yeah. I mean, one thing that I frequently use the exert trigger for was uh, to clear the board for Clothis or even Arbor Elves and uh, Season Pyromancers to swing in for some extra extra points of damage as well. So that that's key too, is like getting that blocker out of the way. Moving on, there are a couple more staple cards in this deck. You know, until maybe this past weekend, Four Blood Braid Elf was more or less stock. Just a great mid-range card and super powerful in this deck since it basically lets you cast anything you find except for Glorybringers. And of course, for Lightning Bolt. Yeah, both of those I do consider closers in this build of the deck because of the haste on Blood Raid Elf and because I bolted people to death a lot with this. I I would try to hold the ground with my creatures and then turn it at their face if I if I could, turn the lightning bolt off their face or, you know, try to hold back on killing your creature unless I absolutely had to. Cuz the reach is nice. Having having that little bit of reach off of lightning bolt super helpful. There are also just a small handful of, you know, cards that are in the flex slot. Uh, right now we're seeing Scoos and Bone Crusher Giant. In the past people would play things like Hex Drinker, sometimes Renin Six sees play, as well as Questing Beast will occasionally see, see play as one of the closers. If I play more of this deck, I definitely want to test out some QBs over maybe a Glorybringer or two. Uh, it's it might be wrong. Uh, I'm I'm fine being wrong. I think you know if blue white control were were more around, it's the type of thing that you definitely would want those questing beasts in there because they are just planeswalker killers. Um Hex Drinker is definitely a card I would want to test in this deck. Again, like I was I've been banging this drum, I want something to sink my mana into. I want something to be able to do with my mana when I'm out of cards. And leveling up a Hex Drinker is a very good thing to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, the problem with Questing Beast in particular, Shane, is that it's not good with any of the companions that this deck would play. Yep, that's the issue. Wait, there's already a companion version of this deck? Dave, are you sitting down? I'm sitting down. There is a companion version of this deck. And the companion that we played with, including you, which you probably forgot now. Oh, yeah, I did. Was Obosh, the Prey Piercer. The Mighty Obosh, my favorite BBC show. Obosh, the Prey Piercer, is three black, red, black, red hybrid mana legendary hellion horror hellion horror your starting deck contains only cards with odd cmc and land cards is the companion clause and the upside because all of these cards are good if a source you control with an odd cmc would deal damage to a permanent or player it deals double that damage to that permanent or player instead and it's a three five dave I know you like lightning bolts. How about a six damage lightning bolt? Oh, yeah. Now we're talking. How about Clothis does four damage now with its with its uh, triggered ability? How about Glorybringer does eight damage at haste speed flying? Mm-hmm. That's a spicy meatball. I'll say. Hey, guys, do you know which Pokemon this one reminds me of? The Obosh. In, like in terms of mechanics or like the look? Entirely aesthetically. Obosh. Okay, I'm looking at Obosh. Is this like a new Pokemon? Is this an old Pokemon? Is this like from like Red Blue or is this like one of those newfangled like Diamond Sapphires or something? Is is Pinhead a Pokemon? Shane, you're so good. It's actually from the era of Pearl and Diamond and it's called Giratina. It's a legendary dragon ghost from another dimension. It's, It's the antagonist of space and time. 
Well, Obosh is definitely going to be antagonizing some people. And also, yeah, Obosh is truly horrifying art for sure. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a tremor. It's like a tremor millipede. Yeah. No one liked my Clive Barker reference a minute ago. Huh? We'll just, we'll just keep going. Hey, I love the first two Hellraiser movies, man. <laughs> They're super weird. They're all super weird. So to meet the companion clause, you have to trade off some cards from your main deck. And those are Chandra, Bloodbraid Elf, Scavenging Ooze, and some potential sideboard cards, which are like Collector Oof, Cinder Vines, and maybe even a Braid. But it does replace those cards with other cards that are odd CMC. And I don't think we're really going to dwell on the companion version for very long, but you may encounter it, so we'll tell you which cards people may be running, because they can be a little surprising. The first one, especially, and that's Domri, Anarch of Bolus, A War of the Spark Planeswalker, mm-hmm. one red-green with the static ability that creatures you control get plus one, plus zero. Not bad with tokens. Not bad at all. Also, plus one, add red or green, and creatures you... S- spells you cast this turn can't be countered so you don't even have to use the mana to get that ability just any creature spell you cast yep also minus two target creature you control fights target creature you don't control and it starts with three loyalty i gotta ask wouldn't domri raid be better than domri anarchobolus in a in a deck where you want to be drawing cards to me like i just want to be able to get more butts onto the board i think the cool thing about this domri is the plus to add mana and the minus to remove creatures. I guess Domri Raid has that same minus, but I actually found, you know, especially now considering how like Bant Snow is still quite popular and like everyone's running Archmage's Charms and Cryptic Command Loop sometimes, making your really important closers uncounterable was actually really relevant when I played this version of the deck, even this weekend, which was, you know, companion capital of the world mm-hmm. so maybe but that, that, that was my personal experience yeah yeah i'm not like i'm not i'm not sold on either one i just am I'm, i keep thinking about ways to keep my my flow of cards going and i might i might be overvaluing that I, I will like just to make it clear i don't think it's worth playing this version of the deck because you get domery <laughs> Like, Domery is a concession you make because you get potentially a much more powerful card, which is Obosh. Yeah, I'm just curious if, like, there's a, a different concession could be made. And I'm sure this is still, this is very early. So people will 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 make this a little bit more tuned soon. Yeah, Domery's plus is not very good. Domery Red's plus is not very good. I mean, think about how often that bricks. It's just look at it and you get to keep it if it's a creature. That's what, like a one out of three shot? That's not good. That's not that's not as good as as ramping. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, some of the changes to the sideboard, it's got a couple of thrashing brontodons in the list that we saw and played with. Kitchen Finks, which I actually found fine. I, I got paired against Burn, and it was A-OK. How long and, has that card been good? Forever. Yeah, when in doubt, just throw a Kitchen Finks in there. And, of course, Veil of Summer, which this deck traditionally wasn't running, and now it kind of has to. Amazing for me in, in several matchups where I've played this version. Well, it's an amazing card, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, love it. I know Dave played Obosh. Shane, did you get a chance? Oh, yeah. My my last, uh, like, three matches were all with Obosh. What'd you guys think of, of your new Hellion companion? You have to love him. <laughs> he knows if you don't. Is he or like your knows. friend, or is he like your son, as Ryan Overturf talked about Bedlam Reveler on the 
prowess episode. This is your roommate that buys you wine coolers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gives you the uh, headache from hell. What do you think, Dave? You compared I, them, I think, more than I did. I thought it was very powerful. Like, I mean, it was immediately clear to me that companion mechanic is good after I got a chance to play three, you know, a single match with this, where I suddenly could just drop this card on turn five and all of my all of my threats do double damage is insane. It's unbelievable. And the the thing is, like, that effect exists, right? There's a mechan there's uh, a flash enchantment that I think does the same thing for five CMC from old Theros block. I think it's called uh Perforos something something. And it's um this is so much better because it's a creature. You always have it. You now don't have to run it in your deck. You never draw it. It's kind of hard to kill too. Yeah, and this this card is hard to kill. Like a five toughness creature is not the easiest thing in the world to kill in modern in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I agree. This card is really impressive. And sometimes it was impressive to me after I failed to cast it because what I think this card added to the deck in my admittedly small sample size was the actual I win button where there would be certain games where my opponents would tap out and it would be like turn five or six and I happen to have a couple creatures on the board and I cast Obosh and I just swing with everything and deal like 16 damage on the spot. Yeah. It also, if you have Obosh and Clothis out, the Clothis triggered ability of draining and gaining does damage. So Clothis now pinks for four. Yeah. That's what Dave was talking about earlier. It's just, it's crazy. Brutal. This this reminds me a lot of how I play Mono Red and how you sort of build your game plan in Mono Red and Standard around Torben. And I mentioned that earlier, and this is just a lot better than, than Torben in a lot of ways because the double damage is insane. Uh, it's a larger creature than Torben itself. So like when you have a clear board, if you've stabilized and you've removed their creatures and you stick your Obosh, you're swinging for six. Yeah. Which is incredible. And like you said, it has, has a bigger, as a bigger toughness with the five and all of your, your lightning bolts are awesome with a Torben with an Obosh out rather. I mean, they're good with a Torben too, but they're better with an Obosh. So the other thing I would point out that's interesting here too, is that it deals double damage on blocking Mm -hmm. as well. And that actually came up for me a couple of times where I was a little bit behind people were attacking into me and I could do some advantageous blocks and kind of clear their board and then have some guys left to swing in. I mean, I I even, I think in one match I sacrificed my Obosh to, you know, like a, I think it was a Titan, a giant Titan. I was like, all right, go on and swing in. You're going to lose the Titan in this exchange as well. And that managed to let my glory bringers finish off the game on the other side. So, what's crazy about the companion part of Obosh, and I'm sure we'll talk about this next week more when we get some more uh, reps with companion decks under our belts, is you can, you know, you're going to have this card when you want it. So, you can develop your entire game plan and the way you play your cards out and what you keep for later around Obosh. So, you can be like, well, I could cast this lightning bolt right now and remove this creature, or I could just sandbag it for when I play my Obosh and just win with it because I'm gonna, I can just deal six to their dome. So it changes the way you race. It changes the way you remove opposing creatures. It changes the way you sequence your spells in like a really interesting way. And yeah, there's, it's, it's powerful. 
I hate to say it, for as much time as we spent talking about the non-companion version of this deck, I think that um, principles apply, of course, from our earlier discussion, but I do think that this version is probably better in general because of what Stan talked about, which is that it is an I-win button that you get to control when you want it to come into play. I think we might find that to be true after we've had a little bit more time to kind of like develop the deck and, and, and kind of tweak it because there were cars that just felt iffy, including Domery for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back to the Torben example, like if, if, if anyone playing an aggressive red deck could cast Torben from their sideboard at any time, they would, they would adore that card. It would be an absurd card. And that's essentially what this is. Yeah. I mean, if you, if, I mean, we saw in the pioneer, uh, tournament that we looked at that people were playing obosh in in mono red aggro decks in the sideboard you know just change your game plan all right guys we've played this deck we've been making fun of it for years and now we're now we're the bad guys why do you think this deck might be good now tell us why you think it's good we're asking i think it's clothus yeah like full stop i think clothus is just a great way to i, I mean i might be borrowing words from one of our previous recent guests, but Clothus kind of shores up some formerly troublesome matchups by like giving you a little bit more game against graveyard decks and a little bit more game against aggro decks. While also the meta, I think, may actually be super ripe right now for what this deck's plans are, which is disrupting people's resources, literally destroying their lands. And, you know, as Dave said, like, Sure, we have game against so much of the meta, but like incidental graveyard hate, having a clock that is almost impossible to remove, I think it all kind of boils down into this really nice package of its position is just the best it's ever been. And one other thing I want to mention that I've been thinking about a lot lately with Modern in particular is that until Once Upon a Time was banned it felt like Modern was completely overrun with these big mana strategies, whether it was some flavor of Primeval Titan or Eldrazi Tron or maybe even regular Tron or maybe even Blue Tron. Like, everyone was all about producing as much mana as possible by turn three. And we've seen a lot of those decks decline, but Ponza is still producing a lot of mana very early. So maybe we're entering or kind of seeing the end of a period where part of the game to be competitive in modern was figuring out ways to generate as much mana and resource as possible and finding the best payoffs for that. And I think Ponza just happens to be one of those strategies that gets to like play ahead of the curve, make a bunch of mana and make those payoffs that are hard for people to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I think you opened the floor to us to answer that question, but I feel like I can't add anything to what you said. I do think that you kind of nailed the aspects of it that make it the most powerful to me. I think the last thing is just in the companion version, it has access to what I think is going to be one of the most popular companions for people to play, which is Obosh. Mm -hmm. And so when you tie those all up together, I think you really get to something that is quite powerful and I think is going to maintain its position even as this metagame quickly changes given the new cards that are being injected into it from Ikoria. My two cents. Shane, cosine? I, I just, I mean, I personally... Do you agree with the premise that the deck is even good right now? I think, I mean, the deck is clearly good right now, but I also am of the opinion that players make decks good in spite of 
the power level relative to the rest of the format. So what I mean by that is that I think that most decks and most good decks in Magic have very small edges. Like we're talking like a few percentage points here and there, right? I think those can be amplified in particular metagames. So if this is good in a field where people are trying to leverage the power of Primeval Titan, then that's going to be a good foil to that strategy. But at the same time, this deck isn't particularly blazing fast. I also think it doesn't have an doesn't have incredible ways to even slow down other very fast decks. Like sure, it has uh, removal. I mean, it has lightning bolt, and it typically has some bone crusher giants. But I don't really see how this deck is going to typically beat uh, Infect, for example. Um, not that Infect is like a tier one scourge out there, but I think that there this deck has plenty of weaknesses that could be exploited. And I'm sure that the, the cycle of the metagame will continue to develop. I, I just don't think that, like, I don't think Clothis itself is like some card that is so uniquely powerful that is going, like, like a, like a Urza, for example, that is like, like Urza based decks are continually powerful. I don't know if this deck is like going to be built around the Clothis engine that, requ- that provides such a unique, powerful ability like a Urza, for example. And I know you're not saying that. But that's kind of like where I'm thinking right now. It seems like a good deck that can exploit certain metagames, but has flaws, which is what you want Magic to be, I think, typically. Cool. Co-signed. Do you guys want to talk about some of the decks that you think were good matchups for you? Yeah. Because I got to say, I was winning some games. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think that the the matchup that seemed the best to me was just Burn. I mean, it's a burn in land decks, right? Like it's burn, lands decks, anything aggro. I felt like, I mean, counter to what Shane was saying a moment ago, I felt like I very much was keeping up with aggro decks with this, uh, mostly off of the back of Clothis. Um, Soul Herder decks, I did okay against in a weird way, unfortunately. I Unfortunately, I had to play those multiple times. Um, I'm still totally not sure how I beat them, but it was very, very difficult. Interesting. I um I actually had a little bit of success against Dredge. I would say like this is the best game one I've ever had against Dredge with any of the decks that I've enjoyed playing. And that's off like what the back of Scavenging Goose and Clothis. Yeah, it, it's entirely Clothis. Scoos was like a nice addition, but even before I was playing the Scoos version, I thought Clothis was just so good because sometimes the Dredge player has a really bad Dredge and. Often will be like if you play Clothis on turn two and they have one bad bad dredge, you can really start punishing them. I also beat Infect. I found like Infect and like some of these like low to the ground, small fast creature decks, with the exception of Bogles, were really easy to deal with. You know, David mentioned Burn, but like I think Prowess fell into that as well. Yeah. Prowess actually had a little bit of a trickiness with because it has trample. It can give trample with crash through. And so I had a little bit of like scary moments from that. The, um, the thing I would say about playing against infect is that this deck has main deck answers to, um, ink moth nexus exactly which is pretty nice and helpful and then you got your bolts and you got your glory bringers that you can rev into and you got chandra that can kill an infect creature no problem so there's there's enough answers i think to that kind of strategy 
you can't always interact with them at instant speed, but you can do a lot on your turn to get in the way of a, of a deck like that. I'll take the infect side of this mashup every time, though. Okay. <laughs> Happy birthday. You're wrong. <laughs> you, well, you, you think this is a positive matchup against Infect with four lightning bolts? I don't know. Well, I mean, it has four lightning bolts, two Bonecrusher Giants. You can pillage Ink Moth Nexus. I really think it's the Bloodman. I mean, Bloodman is just one of the best cards against Infect in my years of experience casting Blood Moons in my stupid blue red decks. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can fetch up basics as the Infect player if you suspect it's coming. It hits Ink Moth for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I, under, I understand what you're saying. I, but I do think that you know, it's, it's a big mid-range deck. But I also don't think it necessarily... I think one of the things I think I hear people saying is like, well, it has land destruction, so it can beat Tron. Mm-hmm. And it has, it has removal and life gain, so it can beat aggro, right? Mm-hmm. And so what's it losing to, do you think? Uh, Urza, for one thing, was pretty tough for me. What do you think, Stan? Yeah, I think uh, the snow decks were actually pretty hard. Unless you like had a killer, killer curve into like turn two Blood Moon while you're on the play, um, to like shut them off of their fetch lands specifically. The fact that like all of their lands are basics and and, and like they're hitting every land drop, I found that pretty challenging. And they have Astrolabe. Exactly. Yeah, I think combo is really bad against you or it's really good against you and it's really bad to play against because you're just not fast enough and you don't really have any interaction besides with their lands primarily yeah i managed to beat storm with this deck but i had to i had to have them brick and i had to have some pretty amazing plays with veil of summer mm-hmm. i had to veil of summer gifts ungiven twice two turns in a row i had to veil of summer against a, uh, and it got me there I kind of feel like this is the type of deck where I hated being against Jund when I was on the draw. Mm-hmm. Uh, early hand disruption I found to be super punishing. Um, and like Assassin's Trophy was just like great against pretty much everything in my deck except Clothis. So sometimes their Tarmogoyce will get like obviously outside of Bolt range, but they'll even get outside of Glorybringer range. So I found that I found that kind of hard yeah but also like a lot of good mid-range decks the nut draw will just give you game against pretty much anything in the field so maybe this deck has no bad matchups <laughs> i don't think that's true all right do we have any parting tips and tricks or final thoughts hmm. my big note that i would give as we kind of talk about uh where to go with this deck is again do not put utopia sprawl on your stomping grounds don't do it yes. if you have Blood Moon in your deck because you'll regret it. Also, uh, Stan, I said there was, I, I found a big non-bow with Magus of the Moon. I forgot what it was. And you were like, oh yeah, that is a terrible one. It was, oh yeah, I mean, Anger of the Gods yeah. in your sideboard. Don't, don't, it's, 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 it's hard to, <laughs> yeah, that's a uniquely bad combo when you want to be having a Blood Moon effect, but then you also need to like wipe a board. So like versus humans, perhaps you're like, well, I can take them off of all of their, their lands, but they already have a little bit of a board and maybe they have a noble hierarch or an aether vial. And then you have to anger to try to wipe things and then you enable all their lands again. Totally. Mine isn't so much a tip or trick, but it's kind of a question for you guys. Maybe you can share or help me develop a develop a tip or trick. Is 
seasoned pyromancer good to play on turn two if you can produce three mana do you cast it do you roll the dice with whatever's in your hand uh if i that's the type of plan that i would keep uh if i knew that the cards that i was going to get rid of were things that i felt kind of awkward about like that's where i'm like i'm going to get rid of a glory bringer because i actually don't have a path to casting it early like if i can generate three mana but i don't have a look into land number three then I'll definitely be like, okay, I'm going to ditch Glory Bringer and an extra Clothis with Season Pyromancer on turn two. So I, I definitely did it sometimes if I needed to turn my hand over. How about mulling? You got to do it. You got to do it. I think. Got to do it a lot. Yeah, Dave, I really liked your heuristic words. Like, you're kind of just mulling to, toward a way to cast a three mana spell on turn two and kind of hope that the deck works beyond that. I don't get more aggressive than that. I don't try to make wilder things, but yeah, three mana spell on turn two, you got to do it. I think my, my question here though, is like, what are you really getting on turn three besides the Magus of the moon or the pillage? And, and is that worth it? Clothis. I mean, like it's like a turn three cloth is really that backbreaking. Like it doesn't turn two. Yeah, I mean, it's a turn two cloth is that backbreaking. Do you know what I mean it's not like yes. it's not it's not that it's not that ridiculous of a card. It's that good. It really is that good. It lets you cast a five drop on turn three if you make your other land drop, or it buys you a couple of turns with life gain, or it gets rid of their graveyard car, their card that's in the graveyard. Yeah, I mean it's it's really that good. It also basically never goes away. Yeah, because like, I think that's why it's so good. It's just it's so hard to answer. You almost have to answer it coming down or like have Path to Exile once it becomes a creature. Like when we were playing Mono Red Prison, like the entire engine of that deck is is built around lockout early plays, right? And so you're mulling to those and that makes a lot more sense to me than mulling to the, the mana engine that then enables like a hopefully high impact mid mid game card or the early game for us but it's not like immediately stopping the opponent's plan completely outright it's just like high value because like one more turn is perhaps a four point life swing you know again or something of like that or another another pip of mana a turn early right which is like it's it's like less overtly powerful to me well you know what Shane now you get to play obosh and just went on the spot and i think that should be powerful enough for you can we talk a little bit about what people should do against this deck? Because I feel like we talked about how to play this deck, but not really like how you should try to stop our game plan. Sure. We should kind of breeze through it. We're running low on time. But I think that's an important thing to share. Yeah. And and Dave sort of mentioned it. Like if you have an opportunity to kill their turn one Arbor Elf, you have to. This is not like the game where it's like, do I kill Birds of Paradise? Do I bolt the bird? I don't know. You have to kill Arbor Elf just because they will potentially lock you out if you don't or just like cast crazy spells really fast. I feel like flooding the board is challenging because you only have so much point removal and only so many bodies to block with and you don't really want to block with your Magus of the Moon. You don't really want to block with your Elf too much. But you do want to block with Season Pyromancer and the tokens off of it. So... <clears throat> There's a little back and forth there, but it, it's very situational. It depends on the draw. 
that the um the person gets because sometimes you can't attack into the board with all with a lot of extra stuff because you don't know how much they're going to swing back for because of Bloodbraid elf and glorybringer and things like that so i think you're going to be a little careful with like the go wide attack into everything plan but it's definitely there let's say you're a player on a thoughtseize deck against ponza and you thought sees them and you can't like punch a hole, but you have to decide whether you want to maybe take them down on their ramp plan or take them down on payoffs. Which do you think is better? I mean, I think you take them off of payoffs in this deck, but I don't know. Shane is a more experienced ramp person. Of course it depends on what they have, right? Like let's say, let's say mold to six and they have like a utopia sprawl and an arbor elf. You're going to want to stop the mana engine if you have any removal in the future, like let's say like they can get something online on turn four, then you're like, yeah, I'm going to assassin's trophy that Mm -hmm. sweet. I got like two mana advantage off of your Chandra or something like that. Cool. I think it tends towards payoffs because there, it it is possible in this deck to draw a whole lot of enablers and not enough payoffs. Yeah. I don't know. I I will say that I wish we had more time to play with Obosh because that felt like kind of a skill testing card for this deck. Like I started to kind of get my sea legs. I stopped putting the Utopia Sprawl on stomping grounds and boom, companions happened. And I got to play a league and then some with the companion. And there were like, I got to say there was at least two games, if not matches, that I could have won if I had only remembered to cast my companion to the point where I had to like manipulate my MTGO screen in a way that it looked like the companion zone was actually in my hand because otherwise I would just totally forget it was there. Mm. And, you know, if if remembering the companions are in your companion zone is part of the balancing act, <laughs> so be it. What a trade-off for an eighth card in your hand. Got to remember to use it. <laughs> That's that's the deal. <laughs> you know, people keep talking about these eighth cards, but sometimes I mulligan. Yeah, true. So, so I got to ask you. I think you guys can tell. I'm, I'm I have a little bit of doubt about the the long term tier one status of this deck, but it, it's it's the the most well performing deck in the meta by a very small margin, according to Goldfish. Do you think that's the case for the immediate future? For the long term future? I don't think there's any deck that's going to stay the exact same and good for the long-term future for the foreseeable future right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think not only is it because modern is like reasonably dynamic, but as new sets come out and keep adding new toys for different decks, I think we're just going to see uh, maybe even a faster churn within the meta than what we may be used to from like the first half of modern's history, you know, like Titan was good. Now it seems to be a little less good. I think Ponza might, you know, a few months from now, like be a little less good. But as long as Clothis is around, like I think it'll still be decent. Certainly LGS legal if LGSs are ever a thing again. Yeah, I can't, I mostly agree in the sense of like the metagame is going to be in a lot of upheaval the next couple of weeks and months potentially because of Companion. And so who knows what's going to happen? You know, there's 10 of these toys to play with that who knows what's going to be the best one at the top of that list right now. I do think that this deck is positioned as well as anything is because it has a good and powerful companion it can play. And that's maybe about the best I can say about it right now. 
listen, this was fun. Whatever happens to Ponza, we'll be here with the breakdown to keep you informed on the latest innovations, trends, strategies in modern and pioneer. Why not? But I think for now that wraps up this week's show. Absolutely. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in Modern or Pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon, where joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. Check that out at patreon.com slash the dive down. Of course, shout out to Manitraders for sponsoring our show. You can sign up for Manitraders using promo code the dive down, all one word, for 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. And I, for one, have not had any issue renting new cards since they've come out. I know sometimes Manitraders can be a little slow to get those new cards, but on weekend one, I was getting the new cards I wanted. I wanted them all. There's also a loyalty component attached to that to keep in mind. So the longer you've been a subscriber, the earlier you can get cards. So if you sign up now, you'll be good in the future. Yeah. You'll be good by the time the next set rolls around, maybe. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, stay inside and blow up lands. Who's got background music? You can hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Nicole. <laughs> I love you, but she, it sounded like she was watching like war propaganda. <laughs> Join the Space Navy. Okay. How's that? Did you just mute your wife's television remotely? <laughs> it's great i can't hear anything okay i couldn't hear anything anyway so <laughs> <laughs>